Welcome to Military History Plus, the podcast that examines the history of war in breadth and depth. I'm one half of your hosts, I'm Dr Spencer Jones, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Professor Gary Sheffield. Well, Gary, it's a pleasure to be back recording with you again after our summer recess. What did you get up to over the summer between season one and season two? Uh, I spent a good deal of the summer overseas in the Mediterranean lecturing on cruise ships. It's one of these hardship gigs. I come my way every now and again. <laughs> uh, no, I had, I had a, a fantastic time. And uh, so a lot of beautiful places went to Pompeii, went to Jerusalem, went to the pyramids. I also got a little bit of reading done and even a little bit of writing. So it wasn't purely pleasure over the summer. There was quite a lot of it. Well, I, I salute your dedication to actually get some reading and some productive working when you're visiting all these locations. Um, what were you lecturing on, if I may ask? I was lecturing on all sorts of things, actually. Uh, one of the reasons I like doing these cruises, apart from the obvious, is it gives me a chance to go back and look at some periods of history, which I'm fascinated by, but I've never had a professional reason to do a lecture on. So, for example, I did something on Alexander the Great. Mm, you know, mm. I'm fascinated by, by Alexander the Great for, for many years. And probably the highlight for me, if not for my audience, was doing a lecture on Nelson and Napoleon and the battle for Egypt and Syria in 1798, 1799. And we're actually, when I gave the talk, we were uh, anchored. Uh, Alexandria, perhaps about 20 miles away from Abulkir Bay, where, of course, oh, wow. the Battle of the Nile was fought, yeah. Oh, fantastic. What did you, well, having having revealed my summer secrets, what were you doing over the, over the break? Well, I have to confess that I, too, was on ships for a, quite a portion of the summer break as well, um, mainly doing transatlantics aboard the Queen Mary II, where I'll be speaking on the, the, the life and times of Winston Churchill, actually, with a particular focus on Churchill's early wars, which include you know, quite remarkable adventures with the Malakan field force, uh, the cavalry charges in Sudan, and above all else, the prison break from mm. Pretoria in the Boer War, which is a, a real source of fascination uh, to me. Uh, a story that's almost unbelievable. And the more one studies it, the more unbelievable it becomes. So it's always a pleasure to, to share that. I also had the opportunity to go to Texas, which are uh, the great state of Texas, the great city of Austin as well, which is the, my first time there uh, for a conference, received an incredibly warm welcome from, from everybody there, and was even given the, the precious gift of a genuine Stetson. So <laughs> I count myself as an honorary Texan in, in some respects now, and uh, um, I'm not sure I get much opportunity to wear a Stetson in uh, the autumnal UK, but it's a lovely thing to have, if nothing else. Well, I look forward to seeing you wearing it around the campus of the University of Wolverhampton. <laughs> that may compromise my reputation as Wolverhampton's best dressed man, but we'll we'll see how far we can go. I might need the cowboy boots to match. But now uh, let's turn to the subject of our actual podcast today. And this is part two of our continuing series that examines the historiography of the First World War, specifically the British Western Front historiography of the First World War. And at the end of season one, we actually concluded an episode where we traced the creation of the lions led by donkeys image, looking at its how it formed from initially rejected by the official history, but then promoted by Basil Little Hart very strongly and perhaps solidified above all else by David Lloyd George and then Alan Clark in the 1960s. I'd say the response to this episode has been incredibly positive and it's been a, a pleasure, certainly from my perspective, to hear so many 
great speed, um, items of feedback about this, including people actually including it now on syllabuses as a, a listening um, tool to learn something about the historiography. So we're continuing the series and we're going to be looking at the, the man who in many ways waged a, a one man war against the lions led by Donkey Smith. And this is, of course, John Terrain. And you've got an advantage over me, Gary, because you actually met John Terrain, I believe. I did. Um, I got to know him, well, reasonably well. It was back in the 1990s when I was first introduced to him when I was a young, no, I was a lecturer by then, I wasn't a postgrad. And I think he was a little bit suspicious of people like me at first because he'd had quite a hard time previously at the hands of academics. And yet there was this new generation coming in in, in the 1980s and 1990s, people like me, who actually admired John Terray, as I will be explaining later, didn't buy everything that he uh, argued, but nonetheless thought he was a, a weighty historian, well worth listening to. And we gradually won him round. In order in, in, to to see that you know, the younger generation didn't have their, their knives out for him, uh, later through the Western Front Association, of which he was the the first honorary president, I got to know him a little bit better, and uh, yeah, I I had yeah, a, a, a good relationship with him. Hmm. Um, the first time, not 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 the first time I met him, but the first time I had a, a I think a proper conversation with him was in 1994, when there was a conference, a big First World War conference at the University of Leeds, the one which later became the book Facing Armageddon, mm -hmm. if you if you know that one. And anyway, we the speakers were staying at a big hotel in the, in the middle of Leeds. And on the first night, or the night, night before the conference, I think it was, uh, being a Leeds graduate, I was deputed to lead a, a column of the great and the good to uh, a pub and uh, well two things first of all the en route to the pub i discovered that in the 10 years since i left leeds they had changed the road system that i ended up having to take them by somewhat <laughs> roundabout route and the second one having got to a pub it had been a genuine edwardian first world war period pub mm. when i had been a student there by the time we got there in 1994 it had become a sort of fake Edwardian pub but anyway and I, and I and I remember I took um took them in and I went to the bar and I bought John Terrain a pint and I put it down in front of him and the first thing he said to me was you know poets really piss me off <laughs> that's one way to open a conversation I suppose <laughs> yeah actually I, I I I subsequently discovered he actually was very very keen on poetry. Of course, he was referring, of course, to the the way that the the, the First World War poets have distorted the mm. uh, popular view of the First World War, mm. not attacking mm. the poets themselves, simply uh, the way they are regarded as, as as being typical soldiers. Then they are not. Mm. Uh, but then we had a very very interesting conversation about the way that the First World War is viewed today, or was viewed back back in the nineties. Mm. And I look back on it as being one of the, you know, big conversations of my professional career. Mm. Very, very interesting. And if I can just add uh, to the listeners how I came across John Terrain, um, which was when I was a, a, a young man. Well, in fact, I was still at secondary school 
And I went to a post office. And in, in those days in the UK, a lot of post offices actually had book stands, small book stands you could buy paperbacks from. And I was drawn. I was fascinated by military history. And as a boy, I was drawn to the front cover of Mons, The Retreat to Victory, which has got the, for those who don't know it, it has the cover of uh, the last stand of L Battery at the Battle of Neri on the 1st of September, a very dramatic painting. And I was drawn to it just on the, on the front cover. I think I would be about 11 or 12. Bought it for a very small sum. I was very cool. It was pence in those days. And I've read it. And it absolutely gripped me. I found it incredibly gripping. And, and from there, I, I progressed to his his later works as well. So uh, you had the advantage of knowing him, but he was a big inspiration mm. on, on on me as a First World War historian. His style, especially in that first book, really captured my imagination. And uh, and I've been a, a fan of his work ever since. Well, so- I, I had a, a rather different introduction to his work and in a sense, not as positive. Because uh, it, it must have been in 1980 or 1981 when I was an undergraduate at the University of Leeds and I was doing a special <coughs> subject. It, it would have been 1981. I was doing a special subject on Britain and the First World War. And I was writing an essay on, I can't remember what, but involved me reading some military history. And I came across a sentence in one of John Terrain's books uh, in which he used the phrase, the victory won by Haig's army on the Somme in 1916. And that brought me up short. It quite shocked mm. me. How could anybody describe the Somme of all things as being a victory? Now, I've subsequently discovered that in a microcosm, this was the core of Terrain's argument. And it's one of the reasons why Terrain was so controversial. Many people, perhaps most people, on reading something like that, throw away the book in disgust mm. and you know turn their back on him. With with me, it had the opposite effect. It made me want to know more. Mm. And I read more of his of his books, more of his work. And then his this shocking phrase was put into some sort of context. Mm. Now, much, much later on, I wrote little book on the Somme myself came out in 2003 and John Terrain's work was just one of the things I engaged with and I came to in the end a similar but subtly different conclusion because my argument was it was a success for the Allies but I didn't like using the word victory because that has all sorts of connotations of you know Mm. bells ringing and what have you and the Somme is not a victory like Waterloo Mm. or even Alamein. But nonetheless, I came to the conclusion it was a strategic success for the Allies. And that, in a sense, is why terrain is important. Even if you don't agree with him, he always makes you think. Mm. A very good point there. And as we're about to get into John Terrain's publications and work, it's just worth reiterating the, the period in which he's entering the field in the 1960s. And for those of you who just need a refresher on our first part in this series, by the 1960s, the idea that the First World War for Britain was largely futile, that the blame for the huge casualties could be laid at the feet of the generals and the military staff, and the concept of lions led by donkeys had had become pretty much prevalent in discourse on this war. And it's interesting, I think, to, to reflect on just how dominant that idea had become, and therefore how adventurous in some ways John Terrain's response to this actually was. So, 
Where did terrain start in attacking these myths, Gary? Well, terrain was a child of the First World War in a sort of literal sense. He was born in 1921. His father had fought in the First World War and he, he, he died when John was only six, I believe. And John always regarded his father as, as being a, a victim of the First World War. So he was brought up by his widowed mother, the classic, I mean, not, not literally an orphan of the war, but the, the, the next best thing. And so children growing up in the interwar period, particularly with that sort of background, could not help but be aware of the war around them the, the, the whole time. Now, a point worth making, I think, is there was, there was this great myth that in the interwar period, everyone in Britain was swept away by, by pacifism. They completely rejected the war. They, they thought of the generals as being donkeys and all the rest of it. And that's, at best, that's a half-truth. It's probably not even a half-truth because there was a strong thread of patriotism and pride in the Great War, in British mm. victory in the Great War, which remained very, very strong. And uh, John Terrain himself wrote about this uh, in 1933, so when he would have been, what, 12, he got a, a, a prize at school. There's a book which was called, read out the exact title, The Crown of Honour, being stories of heroism, gallantry and devotion from the Great War of 1914 to 1918. And John Terrain, obviously, uh, liked this book at the time, but, but later he came to see it for what it was. Uh, he sort of find the phrase he used. Um, yeah, he, he called it rubbish. But he said the act of sweeping away this sort of rubbish led to the opposite extravagances. In other words, the disenchanted lines led by Donkey's school of thought. Um, but he clearly he continued to think along these lines for some years. Now, John Terrain. Uh, was at Oxford in the Second World War. He was medically unfit. He, he tried to enlist several times, but it was never accepted. So he did one of these uh, truncated two-year wartime degrees. And at Oxford, at Keble College, Oxford, Jack Terrain, as he was known, was a communist, mm. which actually I found slightly difficult to believe, knowing him in his later years when he was a, uh, uh, a Daily Telegraph reading uh, fan of Margaret Thatcher, but like so many yeah. young men at the time. I think he, he, he was an idealist. But during the 1940s and into the 1950s, he started to read more widely around the First World War. And clearly he was fascinated by it, I suspect, because of what happened to his father, who fought, by the way, uh, at Gallipoli and, and on, on, on the Western Front. And it seems that one of the key moments uh, of his eyes opening to the First World War was when he read Little Hart's book on Foch, which appeared in two volumes in about 1937, 38, something like that. Mm. Much later when Terrain was becoming famous and he got to know Little Hart, which we can talk about a bit later, he wrote to Little Hart and said that reading that book was, was a pretty fundamental point at which he started to do to, to, change his mind anyway but certainly by the mid 1950s he was sufficiently intrigued by 
the First World War to start writing about it. So he published some pieces, for example, in History Today. And by the late 1950s, he was starting to come up with what became known as the terrain thesis. And particularly, he was focusing in on, on Douglas Hay. The terrain thesis then, Gary. So can you summarise what that is? Okay, well, the terrain thesis is basically that in spite of what many people had were writing at this time about the First World War, it was such a ghastly, unbelievably horrible experience because the generals were dim. They didn't try any... uh, imaginative manoeuvres or anything like that, he argues that there were simply no shortcuts to victory. That, you know, the indirect approach advocated by the likes of Churchill, of course, the the phrase became famous as used by Little Hart in in the 20s and 30s, was simply no solution because on the Western Front in France and Flanders, factors such as industrialized modern warfare, the sheer toughness of the German army, and the fact there was no flanks to turn, you know, the flank, the Western Front was anchored at one end on the mountains of Switzerland, the other end on the English Channel and the North Sea. That meant that an attritional strategy uh, of, of frontal attacks was pretty well inevitable. And adding to this, he argued the British Army lumbered, uh, laboured, I should say, under a number of handicaps. So they were the junior partners in a coalition dominated by the French. By continental standards, the army that Britain went to war with in 1914 was very small, and that army had to be greatly enlarged in order to produce a continental-sized army to fight the Germans. It was ill-equipped in all sorts of ways, materially and indeed mentally. The army was basically designed for fighting colonial warfare, and Terrain had a a very, uh, I thought, very astute phrase which sums it up. He said the British Army, from commander-in-chief to drummer boy, had to be formed and trained in the field in the face of a powerful, skillful, well-equipped and determined enemy. And that was asking a Mm. lot. Mm. Now, John Terrain, I think it's fair to say his, his books, his ideas have been attacked by a number of critics down the years, ranging from complete military ignoramuses to very sophisticated academic historians. But none have succeeded in overturning that basic point. Mm. But no matter how you peel the onion, it's always going to have these central problems there was simply no shortcut to success Mm. and so today i think that john terrain remains supreme in the field in establishing this basic fact and really there's no historian worth their sort today i think would dispute that now they may well dispute what terrain goes on to argue about the way that the war was conducted particularly by haig but this essential point i think is absolutely key Mm. i think that's a a really good point and i just echo this back to our first episode and in a way terrain really brought forward the point that james edmonds the official historian had tried to make in particularly the the 1915 and 16 volumes this idea of generating an army in the field without the the industrial base to do it without the psychological or 
um, conceptual base to actually conduct mass operations for an army that was used to colonial wars. But of course, Edmonds, as we discussed previously, his overall influence was quite limited. People didn't actually read the official history. I'd still say that people still don't read it, even though you can get hold of it. Whereas Terrain, of course, was selling books and was actually getting these ideas read. And I think I would also make the case, I think he makes the, the that point and the quote that you've just read is, is very appropriate in a much more direct and irrefutable way than Edmonds. Edmonds never Never used one word if you could use five, whereas terrain really drills down to the to the heart of that. So if that's the terrain school, what are the key books that John Terrain was publishing and, and what was the era in which he started publishing them? OK, he wrote, I think, 10 or 11 books directly on the First World War. And I should actually say a number of other books. So, for example, he wrote a book on the campaign of Trafalgar. He wrote a very uh, well-received book on the Royal Air Force in the Second World War. We could, I guess, do another podcast on John Terrain as a historian, not of the First World War, but we'll just stick to this at the moment. For me, the key books are, first of all, uh, Mons' Retreat to Victory, which you've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. came out in 1960. His single most important book, I think, is his biography, or rather, he doesn't call it a biography, it's, it's in effect a military study of Douglas Haig, which is called Douglas Haig, The Educated Soldier, which comes out in 1963. I think it's 1965, he writes a general history of the First World War, an illustrated history, which is a sort of spin-off of the BBC Great War television series. And he writes a number of books after that. My favorite one of that, incidentally, is The Smoke and the Fire, which comes mm. out, I think, in 1980, 81, yes, early, early 80s. And that is a, is, it's a collection of, of think pieces, really, about mm. the First World War. And uh, I reviewed that recently, two or three years ago, uh, as, as a classic book for Stan II, the Western Front Association journal. And what I found it really interesting was reading The Smoke and the Fire, terrain the mature historian but a historian also has had come under a lot of flack a lot of professional indeed personal criticism for 20 odd years and compare that with Douglas Haig the Educated Soldier uh, coming out in 1963 and the arguments are pretty much the same but the tone in the 1970 sorry in the 1980-81 book is much more defensive much more shrill, much more trenchant, uh, and it's a better read for that because it's a it's a very polemical book. Whereas Douglas Haig, the educated soldier, is in many ways, I think, terrain in a sense at, at his best. It's quite balanced and nuanced. I'm afraid John sort of lost a bit of the nuance as he went through life because he got simply got fed up by being attacked <laughs> um, left, mm. left, left, right, and centre. Before I say something a bit more about, about the, the, uh, the Hague book. The book about Mons, I read that comparatively late after I read probably four or five of his other books. And uh, I, I did enjoy it, but there's something I think quite old fashioned about that book. Mm, mm. He's not being particularly revisionist. He's not being particularly polemical. 
And I think, and I heard a, a, a marvellous lecture on this only the other day about, <laughs> about Mons. In brackets, it was given by Spence himself. <laughs> I think that may be related to the fact that Mons was not controversial in the way the Somme was in the early 60s because it is seen as part of the pantheon of great British victories, going back to Waterloo, going back to Blenheim. Uh, it's it's an old-fashioned sort of battle in that sense, in a way that was very, very unlike the Somme or Passchendaele. So anybody, I think, who simply read Mons' Retreat to Victory might have been quite shocked by what they read of Terrain's later work, when he makes a much, much more uh, dynamic and controversial case. And the point that Terrain makes in Douglas Haig, it's not the first time he's made it, but it's, it, it's in its sharpest and most polished form, is that given what I've described as the Terrain thesis, you could, you could only understand Haig's operations within that context. So you mentioned the fact that everybody from drummer boy to commander-in-chief has to learn on the job. Of course, the commander-in-chief is Douglas Haig from the end of 1915. And he argues that the wearing out battles, the phrase taken from Haig's own writings, of 1916-1917, so the Somme and Third Ypres, leads directly to the victories in 1918. In other words, by grinding down the German army, uh, by destroying its materiel, by destroying its morale, that makes possible the victories of 1918. Now, this is very controversial point. On the whole, I agree with it, though I think terrain was being too simplistic in his formulation. But it's important to understand where he gets this from. He gets it directly from Haig himself. Haig's Final Dispatch, which comes out in 1919, is a very carefully constructed defence of his command in the field since 1915. <laughs> Excuse me. And what Haig does is to say basically the, the war takes uh, the form of a number of phases, the coming to grips, the wearing out fight, and the denouement, not the phrases he used, but that's that's what it amounts to. And when you apply that to the Western Front, it does make a good deal of sense. The problem is, it actually gives a sense of coherence and structure and order to events which were not structured and ordered and coherent. Certainly if you compare the, the brilliant logic of Haig's final dispatch with the picture that emerges in Haig's diaries and letters of warfare being chaotic, things not going right, him having to change his mind about operations, things like that. The two really don't match up. So Haig has got a fair amount of ex post facto rationalization going on, which is entirely understandable if you're a general seeking to defend your reputation. But what, what terrain does is take in effect Haig's final dispatch and use that as the second of the two pillars the first one being the terrain thesis the second one being this role of Douglas Haig in putting together the idea that the war 
or cannot be won by shortcuts. Adds to that the idea that Haig deliberately pursued this attritional strategy, which is taken directly from Haig's final dispatch. And upon those two pillars, he constructs his theory of the British victory in the First World War. Well, that's very interesting, not least because it stands, I think, in, in such perfect opposition to the lines led by Donkey's thesis, not merely as a concept, but also in terms of evidence. Certainly by the 1960s, as we've established, the lines led by Donkey's thesis rests so heavily on the 1930s work of Little Hart and, above all else, David Lloyd George. And it's easy to forget, I think, in, in the 21st century where we have access to archives, we can see Douglas Haig's diary and his papers uh, with just a visit to Kew. Back in the 1960s, the archives were only just opening Access to things like Haig's diary was actually quite new and exciting. And I'm not sure that that many historians, other than Terrain, were, were seriously grappling with it in the 1960s. This, this is the era which I think Terrain actually coined the phrase the instant historian uh, for people like Alan Clark to throw together histories, which were just based on, a, on the writings from 30 years earlier, rather than going back to the primary sources. So this is actually quite a, an innovative and, and therefore a new argument because it is based on, on the archives, I guess. Well it, well, it is, but we shouldn't get too carried away with the idea of John Terrain as an archival historian because he had access to Haig's diaries uh, in two forms. First of all, there was uh, an edition published in 1952, edited by Robert Blake, Lord, Bakes, Lord Blake, so anybody could go and read that. But he also, but Terrain also became friendly with uh, the second Earl Haig, so Douglas Haig's son, Doyle Haig. And he got access to the Hague Diaries up in Beamside in Scotland uh, long before anybody else did. Now, don't forget, the archives at the Public Record Office, now the National Archives, do not open for the First World War until 1968. So it is not easy to get access to archives. And Terrain does have archival access to a very important source ahead of everybody else. But, and this is quite a big criticism of the later terrain, once the archives are open more generally, he doesn't make much use of them. Mm. For most of his books, he continues to be reliant on the same secondary sources, so memoirs, published diaries. He talks to war veterans, still a fair number around by the uh, late 50s, early 1960s, including... Brigadier General uh, James Jack, of course, famously Terrain publishes General Jack's diary, one of the single best diaries of um, a regimental officer in the First World War. Title's slightly misleading. He's he's a, a regimental officer for most of the uh, period on, on the Western Front. But he never really gets into doing archival research. This is one of the reasons why he is quite heavily criticised in the 80s and 90s and more recently. And now we're going to a break. So welcome back to Military History Plus. Um, before the break, we were discussing John Terrain, the Terrain thesis, his arguments about the importance of Douglas Haig and the wearing out process, the attritional war in the Western Front. And we were just starting to move into critics of John Terrain because 
John Terrain, shall we say, provoked very strong opinions, and he had very strong opinions of his own. He could criticise just as much as he was criticised in turn. So, Gary, who were the main critics who were attacking John Terrain during his lifetime? I think there's two groups of people we need to look at in that respect. First of all, ordinary people who have read his book and disagree with it. So one man wrote to him in the 1990s, so a long time after the initial shock of the terrain thesis has died off saying why do you persist in defending the indefensible i'm genuinely puzzled at your attitude to hague and there's quite a lot of comments like that in john terrain's papers which i'm fortunate enough to have have access to another self-evidently rather stupid criticism of him in the 1960s is that because John Terrain was too young to have fought in the First World War, he shouldn't be writing about it. So based on that, you don't write any history unless you're actually alive <laughs> while the history was being made. Then you have got other historians. Now, again, I think we need to differentiate between academic historians, people like Michael Howard, Brian Bond, who are on the whole pretty favourably disposed towards terrain and to his work. And other historians like Alan Clark, who did come in, I must say, for, for some, what was described as, I think, one of the rudest reviews of his in history when uh, when terrain reviewed the donkeys, and above all, Basil Littleheart. Now, the Littleheart-terrain relationship is a very interesting one because it starts off with them being on pretty good terms, Terrain uh, writes to the great man to Little Heart of the 1950s. And initially, they got on quite well. Uh, Terrain published a couple of articles in the late 50s, and, and Little Heart quite, quite likes them. Now, there's a long and complicated story, which I won't go into fully, but this, the, what it amounts to is that Terrain is invited to visit Little Heart at his uh, palatial abode in Buckinghamshire, Medmanham in Buckinghamshire. And for, doesn't happen for some months, largely because Terrain is very busy at work. I think he's also got some family illness. But then he does arrive. They spend a quite a convivial day. Terrain reads through some uh, of Little Hart's files, historical files, goes away and things, you know, carry on or it's okay. But there's a major falling out when Terrain publishes Douglas Haig, The Educated Soldier in 1963. I should actually say that the subtitle of that book, The Educated Soldier, is like a red rag to a bull to some people. How can Haig, the biggest donkey of the lot, said to be educated? And uh, I've told this story on a previous podcast, but it bears repeating, that Little Hart writes a series of quite detailed notes attacking the book, which he sends to potential reviewers, and a number of them do indeed make use of these notes. Well, of course, Terrain gets to know of the existence of these notes, and this really poisons the relationship between Little Heart and Terrain. It also, there's a sort of, I mean, rather childish spat in the end about whether Terrain was. Uh, supposed to come back and look at Little Heart stuff on a separate occasion, and clearly Terrain doesn't want to come back. Little Heart thinks he ought to, and it all develops into a very un unfortunate, rather unseemly uh, spat. And um, as I, I said on a previous podcast, 
the fact that Little Heart is briefing potential reviewers of Terrain's book uh, is an interesting approach, shall we say. Now, some reviewers, like Michael Howard, who actually sent me his the copy of the notes that Little Heart sent him, simply ignore the notes and write, I thought, you know, a, a very balanced and favourable review. Uh, George Sewell, who's the actor who plays Haig in the play Oh, What a Lovely War, however, reviews the uh, the book, and he rather guilelessly says in the course of his article, well, Captain Little Heart has very helpfully sent me some notes. And oh. so <laughs> the, cat, the cat is out of the bag. That's not the end of it either, because Terrain is one of the two principal scriptwriters for the 1964 BBC television series, The Great War, which, of course, is one of the landmark television uh, historical series. And Little Heart initially is one of the advisors, and the two men are at loggerheads throughout, and Little Heart resigns very publicly uh, in a row about the contents of some episodes that um, that Terrain has scripted. And the two men are never reconciled. So Little Heart really is the standard bearer for the anti-Hague school. And Terrain is very much, well, he's, he's uh, described by Alan Clark as early as 1962 as being the official custodian of Hague's reputation. So the two men are really at poles apart. And Terrain himself can actually write some remarkably rude reviews. Uh, he gives as good as he gets. I think the key thing to understand here is that John Terrain, in spite of his public persona, is quite a sensitive man. He actually bruises easily. And he obviously found the sort of criticism which goes well beyond, you know, I disagree with Terrain's book. So one critic suggests that he found Hager sort of substitute father figure and given his father had died under such tragic circumstances a victim of the war in the 1920s that must have been very very painful um but he is a man who will stand up toe to toe and and just fight with with his opponents that, that's an interesting point about just how vicious this criticism could be. And uh, as you say, John Terrain could dish it as well as he could take it, but it must, must have must have taken a toll on one's morale to see your work rubbished in, in such way. Well, and I, yet think, I, th I, th I think it did, which is why in the 1990s, when people of my generation and an older uh, uh, generation, people like Peter Simpkins and Brian Bond, started to, from the 80s and 90s, when terrain started to be taken seriously, he was a bit suspicious at first, but actually, I think, came to understand he wasn't on his own. And it did, I think, improve his morale in many ways. Mm. It does raise another question, though, and this is about why did terrain's thesis ultimately become so influential? Because he's being attacked from all angles by critics, being attacked viciously, being attacked by Little Hart, who, of course, is very famous and influential in the 1960s uh, and indeed beforehand. So why was it that ultimately, after a long and grueling campaign, not unlike the British Army's campaign on the Western Front, attritional in nature with setbacks, why did the terrain thesis go from being so viciously attacked to, if not being universally accepted, I think you made that point very well at the head of the podcast, the basic concept being generally accepted and used as a building block for more history? I think it's because... The opening of the archives in 1968 
helped the development of a new generation of historians who started looking at the First World War, I think partly because of the age difference, without the same sort of heavy emotional baggage of the interwar period, and arrived at pretty much the same conclusions as Terrain about the nature of the Western Front, if not about Hay, by a different route, but found themselves actually agreeing with him more than they disagree. Uh, so I think someone like, like Brian Bond, who a young lecturer from the early 1960s onwards, of course, became a very, very senior uh, and prominent First World War historian, my, my PhD supervisor, as, as it happens. Peter Simpkins, formerly the senior historian at the Imperial War Museum, who, as he cheerfully admits, started off very much as a, a lion's led by donkeys man. He actually was Little Hart's research assistant, but came to recognise that uh, actually that terrain was, was more right than wrong. Even George Sewell, the actor who wrote this bad review of um, Terrain's Hague book, in later life, he came to recognise that Terrain had basically got it right. So people who think uh, carefully about the First World War weigh up all the evidence, put it all together, they can't thinking, yeah, OK, Terrain's basically right. He arrived at these conclusions um, many years ahead of the rest of us. I think it's also, but however, it's, it's worth mentioning that he failed to win over one particularly influential historian in, in, in the form of John Keegan. Mm. Now, in the last series, we did an episode on Keegan's great book, Face of Battle, which I, uh, I, I, I was very enthusiastic about the book. Uh, uh, when it comes to his views on the First World War, not so much. And Keegan actually wrote a, a very funny, although very unfair, review of Terrain's book, To Win a War, which is about 1918, which came out in 1978. Uh, and it was published under the heading of Whole Stunt Napu, a uh, good First World War phrase. And he parodied Terrain as the archetypal Tommy. He said, here he comes now, swinging down the duckboards, tin hat slung, cap comforter over his ears. Um, and Keegan recognised the personal cost of, of Terrain's crusade. There is emotion in the voice, the wound strikes on the cuff. The old warrior has suffered for his loyalties. And Keegan, I think very perceptively, identified Terrain as what he called the Enoch Powell of British military historians. In other words, like Enoch Powell, who was his, his views were tremendously unpopular uh, with thinking people, and put it that way, uh, Terrain stuck doggedly year in, year out to what he believed to be true, despite the unfashionability of his cause and hostility he aroused. Can I put a caveat in here? I'm not suggesting that John Terrain shared Enoch Powell's racial views or anything like that. Rather, it's just an interesting and quite astute comparison. But in spite of Keegan's parodying of Terrain, actually the two men had a lot in common. Keegan was a bit younger. He was born in 1934. John Terrain, as I mentioned, 1921. But both of them were recognisably of that interwar generation in their attitudes. In short, both of them had an awful lot of emotional baggage about the war, just different sorts of baggage. 
just in different directions. Keegan is sees the First World War as a terrible, hideous, pointless disaster. Uh, Train also sees the First World War as being appalling, but sees it as being vitally important. Both men have a very emotional take on the war, but looking in from mm. opposite ends. That's a, a very interesting summary of, of that point. And I think it shows in some ways the vibrancy of the the historical of the First World War in this period, that people really did still care about making this point. It was still within living memory. It still was a huge factor within British culture. Uh, and getting this right, getting this debate right, was meant a great deal to these uh, these authors. Otherwise, I doubt Keegan would have continued ploughing, not Keegan, sorry, Terrain would have carried on with the lonely furrow he'd been ploughing. So as we come to the end of this episode, Gary, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. And I'm going to say... How would you sum up John Terrain's legacy for the historiography of the First World War? I think his importance is that he was prepared to stick his neck out, take a very unpopular view, and carry on making points, unpopular points, in book after book, in article after article, in newspaper piece after newspaper piece, until they lodged in the collective mind if i can put it that way of people who are interested in the first world war now his ability to shift the dial on those people who are absolutely wedded to the lines led by donkey's approach i think is relatively limited but he did more than anybody else to put a different view of the first world war in front of a general audience so you mentioned buying a copy of one of Train's books in a post office when you were 11. Um, you wouldn't have got a book by, I don't know, th th think, of, think of some learned First World War professor published by Oxford University Press from that sort of place. <laughs> but you could buy one of John Terrain's books. Mm. And the fact that he had books in W.H. Smith's, and if you went to your local lending library, you could get a book by John Terrain out, which gives a very different view from Alan Clark or AJP Taylor or Leon, Leon Wolf, I think is really uh, very, very important. He didn't get everything right. As a, as a biographer of Haig myself, I admire his book a lot. I I think I I I I agree with more than I disagree, but I certainly disagree with with with, with some of his points. But as I said right at the beginning of the podcast it made me think it made me reassess my ideas and come up with a rationale of why i thought these things and in some cases i i, I changed change my mind he's that sort of provocative historian which actually even if you don't agree with him you have to think through exactly why you disagree with him and i think very unusually for a non-scholarly historian. Terrain, Terrain's work has an importance is such that, that scholars, academic historians, couldn't simply dismiss it, but rather they engaged with it. And in that sense, his work has been at the centre of a major historiographical debate. So even if you get someone like Professor Sir Hugh Strawn, who I think would disagree with many more things about Terrain's work than I do, for example, he would certainly um, recognise 
recognise the importance of terrain in actually helping shape this debate. So I think more than any other individual, I would say, he reshaped the historiographical landscape of Britain and the Western Front. And that is a huge legacy. Uh, if only if only you or I will be remembered for doing <laughs> something like that, which we won't. John Terrain will be, and that's a huge historical achievement. Mm. I think that's a, an absolutely excellent summary. And one thing I, the only thing I'd add to that is you, know, you and I and our colleagues, our students, in some ways we've we built on and tried to revise and, and reform and, and use, stand on the shoulders of, of giants, or in this case, a giant in the form of John Terrain. So his influence on us and the work that we've carried out is, is absolutely huge as well. And that actually leads us neatly to both the end of this episode and also a sneak preview of what we're going to be discussing in our next episode on the historiography of the First World War, where we're going to be looking at what we might loosely term post-terrain scholars from the 1990s onwards, which, spoiler alert, actually includes myself and Gary and some of our colleagues. Well, it's been a fascinating overview of the career and influence of John Terrain and his works, his battles with his critics, and the legacy that he left behind for historians of the First World War. All that's left for me to say is thank you, the listeners, uh, and thank you, Gary, for hosting this episode alongside me. And for now, it's goodbye from me, Dr Spencer Jones. Bye from me, Professor Gary Sheffield. So, goodbye. Goodbye.